We've had a great weekend. Uh, we had a conference yesterday called Christ and Culture, and uh, it was, it's been a privilege to have David Bandrunen with us. Uh, he spoke on those issues yesterday. He comes to us from Escondido, California, uh, where he is a family man. Uh, he and his wife uh, reside there, and they have a 15-year-old son. Not only that, um, David Bandrunen is a churchman. He is uh, ordained and a minister and serves within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, that tells us that he is uh, committed to the gospel uh, because that is a denomination that has been known for uh, promoting and defending the gospel through thick and thin for a long time. So we know that about him as a churchman. Uh, we also know that he's in Escondido where he teaches theology as well as ethics at Westminster Theological Seminary committed to training the next generation. He's a, a trainer of pastors. Um, we also know he's, a, he's an author. He's written some very helpful books. Uh, I consider them helpful for me as a pastor. Uh, we consider them helpful for us as Christians, just how we might live in this world for the honor of Christ. Uh, and finally, I'll mention um, our speaker this morning, David Van Drunen, um, is in all the best senses someone who seeks to be a traditionalist. He doesn't try to blaze a new trail when it comes to speaking about God and about the gospel and about Christ. I'm so thankful that by God's grace, he takes it seriously when the Bible says that the Christian faith is the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. And uh, I'm so thankful that he takes that seriously and wants to point us to the true historic Christ who's always been the true historic Christ. And so let's welcome David Benjamin in as he comes to preach the word of God today. Thank you again, and it's very nice to be with you. It's been a very delightful weekend to spend uh, with this church family, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to read and preach God's Word to you now uh, this morning. The text this morning that I will read and from which I'll preach is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it's just a little bit past the halfway point in the Bible. I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. 
Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This ends our reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Our dear Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have condescended to us to speak to us. You have not left us in our darkness, in our ignorance, but you have made yourself known to us. You have made known the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the way of salvation. You have proclaimed comfort to sinners, and for this we give you great thanks. How we pray now, O Lord, that you would bless this reading and the preaching of your word, that it might be done for your honor and glory alone. We pray that your spirit would bless its message to your people, that we all would respond with faith and repentance before this great word that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you may know that there is a radical transition that takes place in this book, beginning with the 40th chapter. Through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the message that comes through again and again is one of judgment. Isaiah, speaking for God, brings judgment against many nations but especially brings judgment against God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, against the city of Jerusalem. There are a few shining moments of good news here and there in those first 40 chapters, but the overwhelming message is that God's wrath is coming upon his people because of their rebellion against him. The last four chapters of this opening section of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 39, are a series of narratives, of stories. Stories about the life of Hezekiah, who was king in Judah during the time that Isaiah prophesied. And you can find these stories in Second Kings. They're not unique to Isaiah. But what a fitting end they are to this opening of Isaiah. The very last chapter of this opening section, chapter 39, Just a very short story, but it tells of the son of the king of Babylon who comes to Jerusalem to visit Hezekiah, and it ends with a prediction from Isaiah that because of the sins of Israel, God is going to take this people and he is going to bring them into exile in Babylon. He's going to take them out of their land and bring them into captivity far away. That's how Isaiah 1 through 39 ends. And then all of a sudden, chapter 40 begins, and the message could hardly be more different. A message of deliverance, a message of redemption, 
a message of comfort that comes to God's people. What happens here in Isaiah 40 is that the prophet transports us into the future. He speaks a word ahead of time, a word that God's people in exile are going to need to hear once they are there. If Isaiah 1-39 through speaks a word to God's people in their promised land, rebellious, about to experience judgment, Isaiah 40 through the rest of the book speaks to a people who are going to be in exile and are going to need to hear this good news of deliverance in the midst of their sin and misery. And so we might ask, why is Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah so precious to so many of us as Christians? And if you've read through these chapters, you will probably have been struck by their beauty, by their encouragement, by the joy of the Lord that shines through in these chapters. And yet, we might ask ourselves, why do we find them so precious? Here, here were words written for a people so long ago, people who were living in Babylon, who are exiles from Jerusalem in such different circumstances from ourselves. Why do we find these words speaking so powerfully to us? And there's really a very simple answer to that question. And the answer is that the experience of these Israelites in exile long ago is really just a picture of the experience of the entire human race. We are all in exile. God originally created the human race upright, sinless, in perfect fellowship with him in the Garden of Eden. And yet, Adam rebelled against God. The human race fell in Adam. And God sent humanity outside the garden, east of Eden, into a far country. He banished the human race from his holy presence, from his blessed presence. And so, we as a human race have been living ever since in a state of exile. Banished from God's presence. And exile is not a pleasant state to be in. To be in exile means we are away from home, away from where we really belong. Exile is a place of sin, a place of misery, a place of illness, of poverty, of trial, of temptation. But ever since God sent the human race away from His presence, God has drawn a people to Himself who have longed to return who have longed to be restored to God's fellowship, longed to return to God's presence. And this is precisely why Isaiah 40 and the following chapters are indeed and rightly so precious to us as Christians because they are not just a message written for Jewish exiles many, many centuries ago. These are words of comfort that come to all exiles who long to return to the blessed, gracious presence of a holy God. We rightly find encouragement and joy and comfort in Isaiah 40 because they tell us of a coming Messiah, a Messiah who now has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. They tell us about this great Savior who is both strong to save and who is also tender 
like a merciful and gentle shepherd leading us back into that blessed presence of our great God. Let's look first at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 begins with a prophetic call or a prophetic commission. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament prophets, this is something that, uh, that you've probably uh, you've heard about before, that you've read before. In many of the Old Testament prophets, we have stories about God setting apart this particular person to be his messenger and God giving a call to go out and to preach his word to his people. You see, people couldn't appoint themselves to be prophets. They couldn't designate themselves to be messengers of God's word. God had to set them aside. God had to give them a commission. And this is precisely what we find here in Isaiah chapter 40. One of the interesting things about this call is that it is in the plural. If you're familiar with the opening of Handel's Messiah, or you're familiar with the old King James version of Scripture, you may know the opening of Isaiah 40 in these words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And though we don't speak like that any longer, that language communicates the fact that God is speaking here in the plural. He is speaking to more than one prophet. He is speaking to a host of servants, telling them to go and to comfort his people. We don't, these servants aren't named. We don't know exactly who they are. It may be that God is actually indicating here that from this point on, from now on in history, this will be the theme of all of his prophets They are all sent forth now to preach a message of comfort, a message of deliverance, of salvation to God's people in their distress. Now, if we had been reading the book of Isaiah all the way through, and you saw that there was a prophetic call, a prophetic commission here in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 and 2, it might fill us with a a little feeling of dread, might have a little ominous feel to it. And the reason for that is because there's already been a prophetic call in the book of Isaiah. In fact, perhaps the most famous prophetic call in all of the scriptures is found in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, there is this magnificent and awe-inspiring scene. Isaiah sees a vision of God seated in his holy temple And the angels are surrounding his throne and crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is undone. He is distraught as he falls on his face before this great and awesome God. The message that God gave to Isaiah, the call that he delivered to that prophet was not exactly good news. God said to Isaiah at that time, he says, go to this people, go to this people. It's very impersonal. He says, go to this people so that they might see and not perceive. That they might hear and not understand. Go to this people, he's saying to them, and they're not going to respond to you. They're not going to listen to your message. Go and preach a word of judgment to this people. That's what Isaiah had to do. 
He had to be a messenger of bad news. And so when we see this prophetic call, we might initially think, oh no, now what's coming? And yet, how different is this prophetic call? What a different message that Isaiah is given. Isaiah and the host of prophets are given here now to proclaim. It is no longer, no longer does God say, go to this people. What does he say in verse 1? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It is now personal again. This people that were for a time considered no longer God's people because of their sin, God takes them back and he says, you are now again my people and I am your God. And there's one word that summarizes the good news that these prophets are to deliver to God's people at this point. And that word is comfort. Comfort my people, God says to his prophets. I'm sure many of you have had times in your life where you've undergone a very traumatic incident where you perhaps have received very bad news or you've heard some very bad news about a loved one. And there was someone who came to you and spoke to you exactly the right word, said something that you just needed to hear at that time. Someone spoke to you a word of comfort. And it buoyed your spirit and it made it so much easier to handle that trial that you were going through. Well, when the Babylonians came in the fulfillment of God's prophecy, when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and killed so many of the people and burned the temple down and dragged the remnant into exile, they had no comfort. If you're familiar with the book of Lamentations, Lamentations is a small Old Testament book that has five poems that lament the fall of Jerusalem. They were written in the aftermath of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And four or five times in Lamentations 1 alone, the prophet there says, we had no one to comfort us. No one had come alongside them and give them, given them an encouraging word. But now God says to his servants, the prophets, that time is over. Now I want you to go and to speak comfort to my people. This is what you need to say to them. He says at the beginning of verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. If we were to translate those Hebrew words, the original Hebrew words literally, it would say, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem's heart had been broken because of their sin and the judgment of God upon them. Now God says to his servants, go and bind up their broken hearts. Speak a word of comfort to their, to their hearts. Some of you have probably also been in circumstances where you've seen a loved one going through a terribly difficult time, a terrible trial in life, and you've wanted to speak a word of comfort to them. And you struggle to know exactly what to say because it's difficult. It's difficult to look at someone suffering to know exactly what is going to help, what is going to encourage them. If you've been in that circumstance, you know that in order to comfort someone, it really helps if you have genuinely good news to tell them. Well, God's servants, the prophets, they're given genuinely good news to proclaim to God's people. 
in verse 2, there are actually three things that God gives to his servants, the prophets, to announce to God's people, to give them comfort. The first that he tells them is that her warfare is ended. Or as some translations put it, her, her hard service has ended. God's people had gone through a time of warfare, of conflict, of hard service, of bondage. And now God comes to his prophets and says, tell them that those days are over. It is now time to bring them out of that hard service, of that bondage and warfare. Secondly, God tells his servants to tell his people that their iniquity is pardoned. It was their iniquity, it was their sin that had brought God's wrath upon them in the first place, that had driven them off into exile. Now the message comes, God has forgiven you. God no longer holds your iniquity against you. Your sins are forgiven. The third part of this message in verse 2 is that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a little harder to understand, but you find in a number of places in the scriptures this idea of giving double. And what this usually conveys is the idea of proportionality, of balance. To give double means to give exactly what is due. And what may be communicated here is that in her, in God's judgment, in the exile brought to Israel, Israel has received the punishment that God decreed and received it in full, which means that there is now no longer any punishment to bear. They have experienced the full measure of God's judgment against them, and now there is no longer any judgment that God is going to bring. What a wonderful message of comfort that the prophets are given to bring to God's people. Now, we move to look at verses 3 through 5. And verse 3 begins with the simple words, a voice cries. God has commissioned his prophets in verses 1 and 2, and now this anonymous voice cries out. I want you to think about what's going on here. Think about this in the context of Isaiah 40. God has just commissioned his prophets, this multitude of prophets, to go and to comfort his people. And then a voice responds. It appears that one of these prophets, one of these servants of God, has heard the call and now responds. In obedience to God, he raises up his voice. And so we should understand verses 3 through 5 as a word of comfort. This prophet has heard God's call and is now going to speak words of comfort to God's people. And so what is the word? What is this message of comfort in verses 3 through 5? Well, it may not be exactly what we would have expected. This voice describes a giant, enormous highway construction project. That's the message of comfort for God's people. What a picture it is. I tend to think that this is a picture presented here that my neighbors in Southern California might be able to understand a little better than most of you who live in Omaha. I don't mean that in any demeaning way. All I'm saying is 
that if you live in Southern California and you want to drive anywhere else in the country, you've got to drive through some really long stretches of desert. And I'm sure some of you have made a drive through Nevada or Arizona and gone mile after mile in that hot, dry, barren, rocky deserts of the American Southwest. And if you've ever done that, you may have, you may have had this thought. I'm really glad I wasn't on that construction crew that built this road. Because it couldn't have been the easiest job in the world to be out there through long months laying concrete under a hot desert sun. It's pretty impressive to consider, even with our modern technology, that there are people who actually laid hundreds of miles of highway through a barren desert. Now consider the giant construction project described here in Isaiah 43 through 5. It makes our American highways through the southwestern states look like nothing. Because if you drive through our American highways through the desert, and those highways come to a mountain, which they do sometimes in the desert, what do they do? Well, they have to, you have to drive up, and then you kind of drive down on the other side. Or you come to a valley, and you find those in our deserts. Well, you come to the valley, you have to drive down, and then you have to drive back up out of it. What about in Isaiah 40? This highway comes to a mountain, and it just levels the mountain. It comes to a valley, and it just fills that valley right in. This is a highway that is going to be straight. It is going to be smooth. This is a highway construction project like human beings have never built in the history of the world. So it's a great picture. It's an awesome portrait that the prophet sets before us. But in another sense, there seems to be something odd about it, something a little puzzling about this picture. Now, on the one hand, if you are an exile in Babylon, you're one, if you're one of these Jewish exiles who has been taken out of Jerusalem, you've been living in exile in Babylon, and you want to get back to Jerusalem, you want to get back to your homeland, to hear that there's a beautiful, smooth, straight highway through the desert sounds really good because there's a lot of desert between Babylon and Jerusalem. But there's one problem with the description here. The highway described here doesn't seem to be for you. The highway described here is a highway for God. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It is a highway that God is going to be traveling and it's not immediately clear why this is good news, why this is comforting for those of us who are in exile, for those who need a way to travel home, to be restored to God's presence. Why is this comforting? Why is this good news that God is traveling through this beautiful high, uh, desert highway? Well, we need to keep reading. We need to keep exploring this message of Isaiah 40 to see if there is an answer that is provided for us. In verses 6 through 8, we find yet another speaker. In fact, two more speakers. First, we find in verse 6, a voice says, 
cry. Now, this voice isn't identified, but it seems that it is God who is speaking again, giving yet another prophetic call. This voice, probably God's voice, says, cry. And then we find Isaiah himself answering. Isaiah comes back on the scene. He says, I. And I said, what shall I cry? Now, there's one point of difficulty in interpreting these verses that I want to call to your attention. It's clear that in verse 6, Isaiah begins to speak, saying, what shall I cry? But it's actually not entirely clear where Isaiah ceases to speak, where Isaiah's quotation ends. If you're looking at the English Standard Version, which I'm preaching from, there are quotation marks after, what shall I cry? Right? It seems as that Isaiah has a very small quote. The difficulty is that in the original Hebrew text, there are no quotation marks. Ancient Hebrew didn't use quotation marks. And so we don't know for sure where Isaiah actually ceases to speak here. But I think there are good reasons to think that Isaiah actually speaks all the way through the end of verse 7. Let me read these verses again. As if Isaiah is saying all of these things all the way through verse 7. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Isaiah seems to be offering almost a kind of complaint against God. He's saying something like this. He's saying, God, you have told us to give a message of comfort to this people, a message of deliverance and salvation. But Lord, this people, these people are so weak. They're so helpless. They're so frail. They're so vulnerable. They're so sinful, so rebellious. Even when they, they seem to flourish for a day like the flower in the desert, the hot east wind blows on them and they wither and are gone. How can we bring a message of comfort to this kind of people? In verse 8, God answers. And God answers in part by conceding Isaiah's point. By saying, Isaiah, you're on to something but there's more that you need to know. So in verse 8, God says, the grass withers. Yes, Isaiah, you've got a point. The flower fades. Indeed, Isaiah, you're right about that. But the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah, this people, they are weak, they are vulnerable, they are frail, they are sinful, they are rebellious. And if that's all you knew about the facts of the situation, there would indeed be no good reason to think that they could find any comfort. But Isaiah, the word of God stands forever. And this word of God is stronger than the weakness, frailty, and sinfulness of this people 
And if the Word of God proclaims that there will be comfort for God's people, that there will be deliverance for a people in exile, then none of their weakness, none of their frailty, none of their sin will prevail against God's Word. It will accomplish the purposes for which I, the Lord, send it out. And so, as we come to verse 9, how appropriate that God continues His words to Isaiah, to His servants, the prophets. He says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. You see... If the Word of God stands forever, if the Word of God is more powerful than any human force, then the servants of God who are commissioned to speak His Word, they don't need to hide in a corner. They can get up on a mountain. God's servants don't need to whisper God's message in a corner. They can go to a high mountain and yell at the top of their lungs, Lift it up, he says, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Well, I want you to think with me here about the change of perspective. When we were looking at verses 3 through 5 and the description of this great highway construction project, we instinctively set ourselves in the shoes of the exiles in Babylon. That's who we identify with. We identify with those, those sinners in exile suffering under the weight of God's curse. And we heard about this highway stretching out through the wilderness and we marveled at this great thing and yet we wondered, why is this good news for us? Why is this comforting to know that God has a highway through the wilderness? Think about the change of perspective now. In verse 9, we are no longer placing ourselves in Babylon, looking through the desert towards Jerusalem, longing for a way back. Verse 9 places us in Jerusalem. It places us on the top of Mount Zion, the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. So I ask you, as we sit now upon Jerusalem, upon Mount Zion, as we look back towards the desert, back towards Babylon, what should we see? Well, in light of verses 3 through 5, we should see a highway. A highway coming up towards Jerusalem from Babylon. What else should we see? Should we see anyone or anything on that highway? Well, whose highway was it? It's God's highway. So as we look out from Jerusalem back towards the desert, back towards that highway, we ought to see God on that highway coming towards us. Well, is that what the herald on Jerusalem sees? Let me read the end of verse 9 again. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Yes, indeed. The herald looks out from Jerusalem and he sees God coming. And he announces that God is traveling on that highway, returning to his people 
in Jerusalem. Well, as we turn to verses 10 and 11, we finally get an answer. Why is it good news? Why is it comforting for us to know that God has a highway and that God is traveling on this highway towards Jerusalem? Let me read verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Notice this description of God's coming. God is coming, but He's not coming alone. He's coming with His reward. He's coming with His recompense with Him. And so the question comes, what is this reward? What is this recompense that accompanies God on the highway? Brothers and sisters, God's reward is you. God's recompense is His people. God has come. He has conquered the forces of evil. And He claims a people for His very own as His treasured possession. We are His reward. You see why this is good news? God is coming on the highway out of exile towards Jerusalem and He is bringing His people with Him. And how wonderful the picture becomes. All the more wonderful in verse 11. Verse 10 describes God as a mighty warrior leading His people through the wilderness. Verse 11 says, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's not only a mighty warrior and he's not asking his people coming with him to do long, hard marches, military marches through the desert on this highway. He is also a tender shepherd. He is carrying his people in his arms. He is pressing them to his bosom And if any have young, any have weak with them, he has special concern for those. What a wonderful picture of our God. What good news, what comforting news this is to hear about God leading his people out of their exile, back restored into God's loving presence. Brothers and sisters, many, many years after Isaiah wrote these words, the New Testament tells us that John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness. Isaiah 40 verse 3 doesn't identify the speaker, just says a voice cries. The Gospels tell us that that voice in the wilderness is ultimately John the Baptist. And that's an important reminder for us. It's a reminder that when those Jewish exiles returned literally from Babylon to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile, that that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. For you see, when those Jewish exiles went back to the land of Judea, it was good in many respects, but it wasn't great. They were still living under a foreign power. They were still oppressed by many enemies. They were still very sinful. Life was still very hard. 
God's people of old needed someone greater than Ezra. Truly to restore them to God's blessed presence. They needed someone greater than Nehemiah to give them true blessedness, true relief from that human condition of exile from God's presence. What they needed and what every human being needs is the Lord Jesus Christ, that great Messiah to come. And therefore, when God sent John the Baptist into the wilderness, He sent him to prepare the way for none other than that great Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, the mighty warrior, who leads His people out of exile. He is God, the good shepherd, who gently leads His flock, His weak, beleaguered, frail flock, back into the loving presence of their great God. Now, you may have a question in your mind thinking, well, it seems like kind of an unrealistic picture to describe God himself in exile and coming out of exile on a highway back to Jerusalem. Why does God need to go to exi- into exile? Did God really go into exile? Did God really need a wilderness, uh, a highway? People of God... God did go into exile. God in His Son entered into our state of exile. When the Lord Jesus took upon Himself human flesh and blood, He didn't just take upon Himself our nature. He came into our condition. He came into our condition east of Eden, into our condition in a far country, into our condition banished from God's presence. He came knowing the misery and the trials and temptation and poverty and illness and even the death of exile. He experienced exile all the way to the cross, all the way to being forsaken by His Father on that cursed tree. And after He had laid down His life for the sake of His people in exile... Our Lord Jesus needed a way back. He needed a way back to be restored to His Father's presence. And God raised Him up from the dead. God exalted Him to His right hand. And you see, if Jesus was meant to rise alone, if Jesus was meant to ascend to God's presence alone, He wouldn't need a great superhighway. He'd only need a small path. One person, small path is good enough. But you see, Jesus needed a superhighway because Jesus is not coming out of exile back into God's presence all alone. He is coming with a multitude of His people in tow. He is bringing us with Him out of exile. He is raising us up with Him. He has already given us new life by His Spirit and He promises us one day that He will raise our bodies from the dead And He will give us a permanent home with Him in the new heavens and new earth, in that heavenly city that eager hearts are expecting. And so, brothers and sisters, the Word comes to us all, all of us exiles today. Be comforted. Whatever you are suffering, whatever 
temptations you are enduring, whatever illnesses, whatever poverty, whatever heartbrokenness you are experiencing now, be comforted in your Lord. Because the guilt of your sin, the guilt that drove you into exile, it has been paid. The highway that leads out of exile into God's heavenly, everlasting presence, it has been built. And your Lord Jesus Christ is carrying you in his bosom as your gentle shepherd. And he will not let you go until he sets you down safe in the presence of his heavenly Father in that everlasting heavenly city. Let us pray. Oh, our Lord and God, we thank you that though you sent us as a human race into exile, you weren't yet done with us. How we thank you that you looked upon us in the misery and the curse of exile and you loved us and you had pity upon us. You had compassion upon us. So much so that you sent your very own son to take upon himself our flesh and blood, to come into our condition of exile, to suffer temptation, to suffer misery, to know broken, to what it was to have a broken heart, to taste death, the death due to sin. But how we thank you, O Lord, that you raised him up and have exalted him to your right hand. And that in his death you have atoned for our sins. In his exaltation you have prepared a way for us into your presence, restored to your favor, to a city whose architect and builder is God a city of which even now we are citizens in which one day we expect to be residents. So, Father, we pray that you would give us comfort in this day. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to the hearts of every one of your people here, that you would speak to them in the midst of whatever trials that they are undergoing, and that you would give them that word of comfort that they might know that their Savior is carrying them, that though at times you may feel far away, that in reality you are nestling us in your bosom and that you will keep us safe from every enemy, from every trial, and that you will deliver us into the arms of our Heavenly Father. May that be of great encouragement and great joy to us, even on this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.